Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave Across Projects. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we're joined today by the great Greg Kokel. Oh, and, cut uh, it you out. Might, <laughs> <laughs> you, might know, you might know Greg Kokel uh, from watching our show, obviously, the, the tens of twelves of you that have, have watched it. Uh, we've just uh, uh, finished up Tactics, and and uh, um, the author is uh, gracious to come on to, uh, to, uh, to, to talk to us about what we might have missed and what questions we might have and yeah. see if we can destroy him right off the bat, <laughs> or if he's as nice as what his book pertains to. So, That's right. That's right. so uh, just to give you an introduction, probably uh, you 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 know probably him more than uh, than I'll even remotely begin to cover here. But uh, Greg Hochul received his master's in philosophy of religion and ethics at Talbot School of Theology, and his master's in Christian apologetics with honors from Simon Greenfield University, and he's an adjunct professor in Christian apologetics at Biola University. Greg founded uh, Standard Reason in 1993 and currently serves as president of Standard Reason. He has spoken to more than 70 colleges and universities, both in the U.S. and abroad, and has hosted his own call-in show for 27 years, advocating for Christianity worth thinking about. He has written seven books, including The Story of Reality, How the mm. World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, and of course, The Great Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. So, Greg, thank you once again for coming on our show. Well, you're welcome in listening to all of that, man. No wonder I feel tired. (laughs) (laughs) One of the uh, the very first uh, interactions that I had with your content was uh, you were still doing videos for Standard Reason, and Uh uh, you you were going to solve my issue because I was was just starting to read Scott Christensen's uh, What About Free Will, and Mm -hmm. I I had um, um, uh, Bondage of the Will all set aside. Mm-hmm. I was going to I was going to do free will compatibilism all in a year and I got through one book in 9 months. So so you were going to help me uh, kind of get over the hurdle and uh, talk about how does how does it work with uh, God's um, uh, uh, actions and then our actions. And right, you said right. well you know I'm I'm not really fully um, set in in my understanding of this. Well I'm like, not surprised I'm not either, you know, because, well, really, you get to a point of mystery. And frankly, I'm not even uh, satisfied with the categories that are characteristically offered, the three, because two are of some form of determinism and the other one is extreme on the other side. It's it's libertarian freedom. And so, and which means that you have the, you know, could have done otherwise capability. You know, you are the author of your own decisions and you have the power to do otherwise. And um, and I, I think those are not adequate to cover the area. So I think it's, it becomes it becomes difficult, you know. Um, and I'll give you one example. Just I was talking to a friend of mine about being in love, you know. Do you love your children? Yeah, I love my children. When did you start loving your children? Uh, when they were born, man. Did you choose to love them? No, it just kind of happened. Well, are you a machine? <laughs> no. So there wasn't a choice there. It's a real affection that you have, but it wasn't also machine-like. So there's some other thing that's going on there that's part of the human condition. And so I'm not surprised that you are still wondering about this because after 47 years, so am I. Yeah. Well, and I, I was just I was just flabbergasted that someone had the audacity to go on YouTube and say, I don't really know about this and I'm okay with that and we mm-hmm. should be too. And, and there's more discussion to be had. So I greatly appreciated the, the honesty in that video. So thank um, you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and, and so uh, I guess the, the first question that I have to ask here is um, your your organization is called uh, Stand to Reason. And right. I just want to know, is it okay to sit to reason? <laughs> what do you mean by that? And how did you come to that? You can conclusion? even lie down to reason if you <laughs> yeah. like to. But actually, what I'm what I'm which I do uh, on more often than not now here nowadays. But uh, I am. I chose that that language because um, I wanted to emphasize the notion that Christians are advocates, that they are not passively involved in the cultural conversation. Uh, they are not letting the culture uh, mold them and direct them. They are not ex- simply passively accepting what the culture defines as truth, but rather they are being informed by the truth of reality. And we know that largely, well, actually two ways. One of them is what God tells us. Um, but largely we can know a lot of things about reality just because of faculties he gives us to discover the reality. And that's, it's great when the two go together, you know, in other words, our view of the world fits it's the way the world actually is. It's the best explanation for the way things are. And so what what I, I wanted to uh, implicitly encourage Christians to think about is that it's our job to stand up 
to stand tall, to, if necessary, stand in the line of, well, I used to say, like, I think intellectual fire, so to speak, but it's becoming more and more costly. It's not just emotionally costly, but it's personally costly to stand up for Christ uh, in this country. And it's always been costly in many other countries and for the last 2,000 years. So I, I just wanted to convey the idea that we want Christians to stand Stand tall. You stand and stand firm. You don't give way. You don't give in. It doesn't mean you're nasty. It means you're just not going to be pushed around. And you stand to make a case. And so both of those things are involved with the concept of standing to reason. So we have something to say. We have thoughtful Christianity. We have a rationale that makes sense of our views. So, so how'd you get uh, interested in apologetics and, you know, and that sort of thing? Well, I... Uh, about two weeks ago, I had my spiritual birthday, and it was 47 years. Oh, wow. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, and that was right in the middle of the Jesus movement, and there were all kinds of things happening in the culture there in the early 70s. It was a big—we was a, we were right in the throes of the massive counterculture that started mid-60s when I was in high school. And uh, so when I became a Christian, all kinds of ideas were flowing wildly and crazily. And that was a period of time when it was okay to have different ideas. You weren't— shouted down because you didn't believe the right thing. There wasn't any political correctness then. No cancel culture. <laughs> yeah, that, well, there was, but it was the Berkeley free speech movement. Come right, on. Right. So, I mean, you <laughs> go to Cal Cal, forget about free speech, <laughs> yeah. you know. But in any event, so there was lots of conversation about spiritual things. When I became a Christian, too, and my circumstances are a little bit unique in this regard, is that I did not have apologetics as a feature of what uh, persuaded me to become a Christian. Uh, my best explanation is simply I came to a increasing awareness that Christianity was true. I mean, that's not very uh, fancy schmancy, but that's the way it was in my case. And, and so and everything like that, you just you yeah, some... it just it was just a, a thing of the Holy Spirit, you know. And uh, and then then when people are asking me, and I was quite vocal. I was at Westwood Village at UCLA, and the streets there in Westwood Village, all kinds of crazy things were going on, and ideas were flowing, and people walking around with stands and religious trips. So I'm engaging. But I don't know what to say. And so I start getting confronted with things, and I don't know how to answer it. Now, in my case, fortunately, within four months of becoming a Christian, that was in September 73, by February 74, I was living in a Christian community in Westwood Village with about 175 other, uh, about 120 other people and some really fabulous teachers that all had been formerly with Campus Crusade for Christ. And they all got mad at Bill Bright at the same time. And then they made their exit, but they, but they had this school called the, it's kind of corny sounding, but Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse, you know. But it was a, it was a Christian community where we studied uh, Christianity and, uh, uh, and I mean, the guy who who discipled Josh McDowell was one of the teachers, uh, Dick Day. So anyway, it got me into an environment right away where I could get content, substance, information. I could get theological uh, foundation built. But at the same time, I was introduced to Francis Schaefer and Josh McDowell and John Montgomery. Actually, there weren't many guys going back there. Walter Martin and uh, Schaefer and McDowell and uh, Norm Geisler was around then, uh, John Montgomery. But that was about it. Um, and uh, I was really influenced quite a bit by Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. And so uh, that's what gave me it. For some reason, I just uh, just gravitated towards that. It just clicked with me. It was a delicious thing to kind of traffic in these ideas and also flesh out the the rational foundation for my own Christianity. And so that's kind of what got me going there, Tony, is, is that. And as time went on, I wanted to communicate that with other people. And so it was just natural for me when I had opportunity um, to do a presentation or something to start integrating that kind of stuff and, and, and learn more and integrate more, that kind of thing. Wow. So, so you're the second guest that we've had. Uh, we talked with Nancy Piercy. Uh, oh, yeah. Ago, and she yeah. obviously was really influenced by Francis Schaeffer. She was now I'm hearing sure. you, you know, influenced by Francis Schaeffer. So he right, of had course. a tremendous influence, apparently, during, during that particular time. 
That's right. And he still does, you know, a little bit more at, at a distance. Os Guinness was a, a, a Schaefer guy, you know, and he, he actually ran one of the Labrys. So uh, so there are, there are quite a number of people that were deeply influenced by Schaefer. And there are a lot of things in the tactics book that uh, that bear his mark, that bear Schaefer's mark. Uh, Nancy is fabulous. And you can see in her books like Total Truth and Saving Leonardo and, and books like that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that that she is she is well tutored by Schaefer, and she's employing his very very sound approaches uh, to the whole enterprise of apologetics. She was actually g- generous enough. I've known Nancy for a long time, but she was she's busy, and she wrote the <laughs> foreword to the story of reality, oh, and it's wow. a magnificent launch for the book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyways, uh, so yeah, Schaefer has been a real uh, uh, an impact on me, and the trilogy that three. Main works that you can get in in one volume now from Crossway, uh, the God who is there, He is there, and He is not silent, and Escape from Reason, um, really really helped lay a foundation for me and an understanding of modernity, which was in play then, but also prescient for the challenges of postmodernity that mm-hmm. we're kind of facing in many ways now. Yeah, I remember reading that, and I, I was thinking to myself, oh, wh- why is he writing in the past? And you got to look at the copyright and go. Oh, he was—he was a prophet. <laughs> it just came to pass. He warned us, and no one he was, was listening. The, yeah. Right, he was in the past. Right, that's right. But it, it, it was—it was. It was uh happily sad to, to see how much he warned and how much went went by and, and probably to a greater extent. It would it would have yeah. been interesting and uh, it's, it's nice that we do have Nancy Pierce. I, I, I honestly think she's almost writing uh, through him uh, in, right. in Love Thy Body because just just what she deals with the, the hard concepts and, and the hard truths that Christianity, or Christians I think want to go, well, you know, I'm asked this in the workplace and, you know, I, I don't really want to offend people but mm-hmm. you know, she, she's, got, she's got the answer and she, yeah, really she does. Uh, I think the the strength for Schaefer was that he understood how ideas affect cultures, mm-hmm. and that and you know from philosophy there are entailments that you, one thing is entailed by another thing. So if you believe this, the next step is this other thing because they're connected, and that's where you're going. And that's what Schaefer saw. He saw all the things people were adopting there in the '60s and the '70s, and he was saying, you know, this is going to take us somewhere else mm-hmm. just by the natural nature of the ideas themselves mm-hmm. okay and this is exactly what has happened yeah so so speaking of you know taking ideas taking us where they are when, when uh we were talking about this book i said you know patrick this book would make a great um you know, book for a critical thinking class. This uh, I'm talking I agree, about tactics. tactics. Yeah. Say that. And so you know, I said, you know, that. maybe this is full of informal logic and this is really, you know, really yeah, good. Yeah. So uh you know, we jokingly, I said, you know, but isn't he giving away, you know, all of his secrets? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's letting everybody know what, what, the, what the strategy or the tactics yeah. are. You know? Yeah, I actually included some of that in the footnotes where I talked about the, in the game plan, the three-step game plan. And the first first issue is to gather information, you know, mm-hmm. and we use a question called, uh, uh, what do you mean by that? But that's the first step of critical thinking. If you want to get think critically about an issue, you've got to get the issue itself right and in clear focus. That's first step. And then the next step is, you know, what are the reasons that people would hold that idea? And that's how, how did you come to that conclusion? So, and then there's an analysis phase. So in a certain sense, it, that is a very simple way of characterizing the process of critical thinking. I, I, you're right. I'm flat, flattered that you saw that. I'm with you on that one, man. <laughs> That'll be for the 20th anniversary. <laughs> yeah. So, so why'd you write the book? Yeah. Well, um, what had happened over over the years of me engaging, and I, I started radio in 1990, and uh, three years before, four years before we started Stand to Reason, and uh, and I because I'm now uh, it's not just in my casual encounters with people that I'm engaging, but now I'm engaging in a much wider audience on the air. Um, I, I'm I'm reflective on how I can best present. The gospel, okay, and I tend to be on the left brain side. I mean, obviously, I think for most people, but and so that's the direction I'm going. I'm just kind of being myself. And as I look back over the years of doing this, I realized, you know, there are very particular things that I'm doing um, intentionally that if I 
isolate them, itemize them, look at them, I can refine them and do them better. And I can also transfer those concepts to other people. And so um, I noticed, for example, that some some, uh, points of view self-destruct. And actually, they self-destruct in different kinds of ways, you know. Uh, Some just self-destruct in themselves. You say, there is no truth. Well, is that true, you know, kind of thing. Or like, I can't speak a word in English. Well, what was that I thought I just heard kind of thing. So some things are immediately and internally incoherent and self-destructive. But then there are other times where where you have in practice that they become self-destructive. So if you might believe that... uh, it's wrong to tell anybody else they're wrong. But the minute you say that, <laughs> then you're violating your own conviction. Yeah. You know, And so that's a practical, um, what, what I call suicide. And so as I began to look at these things and refine them, I saw that there are different particular ways that these could be characterized. I gave names to them, like suicide in that particular case, whether it's formal suicide or practical suicide or sibling rivalry suicide. I was in an event once and, and uh, people were complaining about it, it. This particular event was a movie, a showcasing a movie that I got a chance to, with the author, with the, the, the writers and directors, sit on the stage afterwards and talk about. And um, and it was the issue of the Holocaust came up and people were saying, yeah, what kind of God would do that? You know, allow that. Common question, understandable. And then, you know, somebody mentioned something about judgment and punishment. And then what kind of, oh, that's a nice God, you know, judging everybody. And I said, well, wait a minute. You notice what just happened? You guys have two objections that are opposing each other. You can either have God not doing anything or him doing something. But you can't complaint at both ends. That's <laughs> right. a sibling yeah. rivalry is what I call that. So anyway, <clears throat> o- o- over time, um, these things began to flesh themselves out. And uh, at the time, this was the, uh, let's see, early 90s. And Craig Hazen, who is the who runs the Apologetics MA program at Biola now, um, he was actually running the program at Simon Greenleaf University. So I was under Craig. Now I had graduated from there, but he was still doing running classes there before I moved over to Biola. And uh, he asked me to come in, and he was the one who challenged me to to put this together in a more formal presentation. So that was the first time that I actually taught the tactics such as they were at the time. And uh, I wrote the book now eleven years ago, the initial book. And just before I went to to press, I was thinking the Colombo tactic, which is the question asking tactic, I realized is actually the game plan and all the rest of the tactics serve the game plan. So I had them split the book in two parts, the game plan and the rest kind of deal. And um, and, and that's kind of the genesis of the whole project. And as time went on, I've just been adding to it or refining it or finding better ways to explain it. So, uh, when when we uh, are talking to atheists, especially uh, nowadays, uh, it's, it always seems that they want you to provide kind of positive evidence for your side. And critiquing the other side is just, oh, it's just dodging the question. So, especially mm-hmm. with the claim that that uh, atheism is this uh, lack of belief, they don't bring anything to the table. They want you to bring all of it. D- does tactics tactics provide us the best approach to uh, to talk to people like this? Well, uh, it it. I mean, strictly speaking, tactics are formal categories for maneuvering, okay, and for spotting flaws. So you have the game plan, which is where you use questions to either gather information or to reverse the burden of proof when appropriate or to use questions to make your own point. There's no substance there. It's a formal category. It's the way that you do things, okay? And then in the book, I give illustrations of particulars, all right? So if you don't know anything, you use the first two steps because you're getting into the shallow end of the pool and you're getting an education. If you know what's wrong with, say, atheism, when you're talking to an atheist, now you can start using questions to make a point. But, of course, you have to know what's wrong with atheism from other sources. You can learn a few things from the illustrations I have in the book. And, as you know, there are lots and lots of illustrations of real-life circumstances that I've been in. Uh, but the best thing is is you, you, you kind of get your content from other sources, and then you use the game plan motif and the other tactics to maneuver in the conversation. So, for example, um, one one difficulty with atheism is that there's no grounding for morality. Um, if materialism is true, and almost every single atheist is a materialist, in other words, it's just it's just particles all the way down. You know, in the <laughs> the cosmos is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. You know, Carl Sagan's famous comment. And so, if that's the case, well moral obligations aren't physical. 
They don't extend in space. They don't have chemical content. They don't respond to the laws of physics. So, so if if materialism is true, then morality can't be. Now, I know their move. Their move is just to go to evolution, but evolution can't create morality. All it does, it, in principle, all it can do is create beliefs about morality that turn out to be false, but aid the survival. Okay, so then. On that view, rape is not wrong, nor is genocide, by the way. In fact, genocide, I mean, argue, might serve the purposes of, of evolution, okay? And frankly, Darwin was exceptionally racist as an individual, um, according to today, today's standards, based on his understanding of evolution. And this is pretty obvious than the longer subtitle of The Origin of Species, which is so long I can't remember it, but it talks about the inferior races, mm-hmm. right? So this creates a problem then for, uh, for, for an atheist, because an atheist, like, say, Richard Dawkins, when he talks talks about uh, uh, materialism. This is, a, this is a world in which there's, there's no good or there's no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, a famous citation of his. But then he, in the God delusion, he starts squawking about the God of the Bible as being a homophobic and genocidal and all these <laughs> moral judgments. And so here's my question. Now, now I know that's inconsistent, okay, because we talked about entailment earlier. And if you believe in materialism, what's entailed in that is no morality, no objective morality. Mm-hmm. All right. That's part of the package. Okay. So then my question becomes, what are the, what are, where's the standard that you're getting to judge God by? What is the standard you're using to judge God by? Now, uh, I actually had a conversation on the air with an atheist who is a Bogosian disciple. <laughs> and, and, and because his view was evolution. So what you're saying is when you say something is wrong, you're saying it disagrees with your evolution. And he said, yes. <laughs> well, at least he was honest. Yeah. But you can see how how vacuous that response is. So what? Okay, it disagrees with your evolution. Doesn't disagree with mine. Doesn't disagree with Hitler's or ISIS or who, or Donald Trump's, for, for, for goodness sake. So wh- where's your basis for complaint? Mm-hmm. That is a very fair criticism of materialistic atheism, you know. So notice how I have some content understanding of the problem that I might have gotten somewhere else, but I use the tactical game plan to employ that. Mm -hmm. So the two kind of have to go together. One is more formal. You know, some views are self-defeating. Okay, well, that's kind of a formal category. Oh, what about postmodernism? Yes, postmodernism is a view that there is no grand narrative, you know, of truth over everything. (laughs) And that is the grand narrative of truth over everything. Oh, that's suicide, right? Right. So that's kind of how that works out. I I did enjoy your book, and and I I made sure to point it out because uh, um, I I also was speaking to me, but calling people to a higher standard, things like you can't just go in with what you know right now. Continue to learn. Continue to understand scripture. Right. Um, you know, if, if uh, either side uh, gets angry, you lose. And and mm-hmm. so I, it, was, right. it was always a nice. It was it was always a nice um, reminder about kind of the the uh, mindset that a, a Christian should have to to kind mm-hmm. of take it slow and, and understand that you're talking to someone who is made in the image of God. And within the types of these discussions, I mean, you, you have examples of uh, you know all sorts of famous people that you're having over the conversation with the with. Um, you know, on the radio and, and, you know, part of your job, but most of the time it's going to be our friends, our family, it's going to be uh, people that we have a a close bond with that we don't want to put the, put our thumb in their eye and tell them, ah, good, good. Now you're Sure. That's right. Thump (laughs) them on the chest or something like that. Yeah. You don't want to bruise the fruit and probably look at the problem is with guys like us is we love doing that kind of thing. We love poking people in the eye and thumping them on the chest and telling them they're wrong, you know, so Anyway, so that is a liability, and this is where we have to remind ourselves. And this is for tr- true for me, too. I'm just, just saying, I, you know, I'm just like you guys and everybody else viewing. i got to get down, uh, feet on the ground, in the dust, you know, trying to um, not get angry and not get the other person angry if I can avoid it. But um, so I have to attend to those things. And it's why Peter says in First Peter chapter 3 in the passage, the famous passage about defending the faith, that we should do it with gentleness and reverence. 
reverence. Oh, how'd that get in there? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, uh, you recently did an interview with uh, Eli Allah, and he, he has a, an amazing ministry because so many people love him because of his uh, just demeanor and how he mm-hmm. emphasizes that among everyone, people who are presuppositionalists, people who aren't, people who are atheists, who people who hate him. I, I, I'm always, I, if I ever interview him, I want to ask him if he's ever had a bad day because his disposition is always, is always so okay. beautiful. I, I guarantee you he probably has, you know. Uh, if not, he's unique because yeah, all of us, right. you know, well, I'll tell you the, the kind of person that really sets me off. And uh, I mean, this happens with my kids too, you know, is, is, uh, is somebody who interrupts a lot. Now that's a steamroller and we do have a defensive technique for that. That's very effective, you know, uh, and uh, it works, but you have to have some steel in order to employ it because steamrollers are tough. But when, when somebody's interrupting, bang, 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 that's when the temperature rises, you know, and uh, then I really have to, okay, count it down, brother, you know, and, uh, and, and employ the tactic and, uh, and get back in control. But that's when I get, that's when I get testy, and, and really. understand people can have the last word and you don't, you don't need the, the, the last word either. That's right. You know, sometimes if you're backing out of a conversation, I actually got this from Dennis Prager. Some, some of your viewers may know him. He's oh, yeah. a Jewish guy, uh, not a Christian, very religious Jew, but. Uh, Prager a, a, you, right? Is He's, he's on this. Prager U, I think he has a. Yes, that's, yeah. that's right. And uh, yeah, Prager U gets a billion views a yeah. year. You know, yeah. I mean, that guy, <laughs> he moves the meter. Yeah. But um, but in his radio demeanor, which, and he's my radio mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually knew Dennis before I even started radio. And so uh, I follow him in, in, in the demeanor because he's such a gracious individual and um, and he is willing to give someone the last word. Now, this might seem counterintuitive to people. Wow, let them have the last word. Well, that's the last word that's ringing in people's minds. It's going to be so persuasive. Oh, wait a minute. It's only going to be persuasive if it's persuasive. (laughs) And a lot of times it's not. If you've said something substantive to get people think contrary, then that's going to stick too. But when you say, I'll let you have the last word, what this does is not just show that you're generous and, and gracious. It also shows that you're confident. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is a powerful that is a powerful apologetic in its own self. I mentioned that no, I didn't uh, become a Christian based on uh, Christian evidences, but it was my younger brother Mark who was the main gardener in my life to bring me to a point of harvest with Christ. And Mark was very confident. That was one of the biggest that he really cared about me. Mm. And he was really confident of the truth. Mm. And he just wasn't going to let go. He was like a, like a rag dog, man, hanging on to me. (laughs) So let's let's just make sure we've been kind of talking around the book and we've really assumed that everybody has read it or at least are familiar with it. Why don't you just kind of walk us briefly through the the, uh, tactics book and so that, you know, so that folks... uh, clearly understand what you're trying to do and how it Yeah, works. of course. Yeah, that's a good point, Tony. We have been talking around it. The book is divided into... Uh, what let me back and put it this way. What tactics are, are principles of maneuvering and conversation. Pretty straightforward. And the principles are meant to accomplish a particular goal in the conversation, and that is to stay in the driver's seat. You don't want to be pulled around by somebody else in the conversation. Uh, you want to be in the driver's seat. Not pulling them around kind of a, in a, uh, a negative way, but be the one who is the conversation is going in the direction that you want it to go. Now, this is a good example right here, gentlemen. I mean, you guys are the hosts and I'm the guest, all right? I'm doing all the heavy lifting. You guys are relaxed there, but it's going in the direction that you want it to go because you're managing it by using questions, all right? And that's the key to the game plan. I call it the Columbo tactic after <laughs> uh, Lieutenant Columbo yeah. of, of ancient TV fame. Um, <laughs> The uh, the DVD sales spiked for Columbo and Dragnet when you were really know, a lot of people have told me they started watching. But uh, part of part of Columbo is that um, the character is that he he comes in under the radar. He does not seem dangerous. And the way those murder mysteries work, the the you know the bad guy, the murderer, right at the front end, and um, and they're usually part of the crowd or the community or whatever that's uh, 
that's part of this whole murder scene. And um, and so he's not going to scare anybody off by his demeanor. He doesn't look threatening at all. But he does use questions. And he a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, and then pretty soon he's got them, you know. And so, so using questions is going to be the game plan proper. And that consists of three simple steps. And I'll just give it to you quickly. The first step, and this is what I encourage people not to worry about, is the end game, mm-hmm. winning people to Christ. Do not even think about that. Uh, that. That kind of takes care of itself with the guidance of the Holy Spirit if you lay, do the uh, do the foundational work, um, uh, which I call gardening, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the, in the gardening kind of phase, you want to first gather information. You're engaging somebody. Uh, you don't. You may not know anything about their convictions, or you might know generally. Maybe you know they're an atheist. Maybe it's Uncle Fred. He's going to come by on Thanksgiving, you know, and he's the the family atheist, you know. But maybe you've never given a, a Uncle Fred a chance to talk. You know, you just got a big fight with him. So the first thing you want to do is gather as much information about the other person's view as possible. The second step is you want to understand why they hold the view they hold. And this is called reversing the burden of proof. And many times it's the other person that is making the claim of some sort against Christianity. There is no God. There was no Jesus. The Bible's been changed, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. You know, Christian history is the biggest, uh, the, the most deaths of res- a result of religion, et cetera, et cetera, and bloodshed. So these are all claims. Well, if somebody makes a claim, it's their job to defend the claim. And so... At the outset, the Christian, I'm encouraging Christians, you don't make the claim, let them make the claim, and then have them defend it. So your first step is to gather information, and you use a question like, what do you mean by that? That's a very, um, very basic uh, model question, and lots of variations. Uh, there's a story in the book about the witch in Wisconsin that I met who is a vendor and had a big pentagram around her neck. And I didn't know she was a witch until I asked her. <laughs> but I didn't say, are you a witch? I said, <laughs> she's a witch. <laughs> Sounds like a Monty Python routine. <laughs> so what I said was, uh, I said, I looked at her pentagram. I said, does that, re- does that jewelry have a religious significance for you? And she said, yes, I'm a pagan. You know, and uh, and then that initiated the conversation. So what's a pagan and what what are your beliefs? And and that initiated the conversation, which is there in the book. Mm -hmm. But notice I just used that model question or some form of that to kind of launch into the conversation. Uh, And and then uh, the second step is to reverse the burden of proof. And we use some form of the question. How did you come to that conclusion? Notice in these first two steps of the game plan, you don't really have to know much. Actually, you don't have to know anything. You're letting the other person do the talking, but you're letting your questions force them to be more clear about their own ideas. Now, what's really crazy about this, fellas, is that even though if, you know, when I'm in play at that point, even though I am not making a point because I'm asking for clarification of their views, um, I am, uh, they have to clarify them <laughs> and they, and a lot of times they can't, right. uh, a standard, a standard, um, circumstance is that people say things they hear other people say, they've been socialized to say it, but they've never thought about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you ask them about what they just said, they even have a hard time explaining what they mean. And this is what I call the Simon and Garfunkel moment. If you remember those two guys in that song in 1966. Sorry, this is like a you know, 60s alert here. Um, and, and the song is Sounds of Silence. And so you're just going to get the sounds of silence. And when you ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? What are your reasons for believing that? You're going to get the sounds of silence. Now, my, my conviction is... Just getting to a person to that point, the first two steps, even if you don't go any further, is going to um, get them thinking, okay? And that's my goal. The way I characterize my goal here is that my goal is not to win them to Christ, because uh, that takes a long time with most people. I'm just trying to do, I'm gardening, I'm not harvesting, okay? And my goal is simply to, as I put it, put a stone in their shoe, 
And when I'm speaking to a secular audience, I tell them that right out of the gate. I get introduced, I walk up there, and I'm a little small talk, and I say, here, I'm not here to convert you today. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not here to convert you. I just want to annoy you. <laughs> uh, in a good way. I want to put a stone in your shoe, is what I tell them. You know, And I, I want you walking out of here, kind of scratching your head, annoyed in a good way about something that I've said. And if I can do that, then I'm, I'm a happy camper. So my, the goal here is modest. It's just to put a stone in someone's shoe. And you can accomplish that without any background knowledge of theology or apologetics at all, often by just asking the other person to clarify their view and give their reasons for the view. And that's part of that. I mean, I got lots of stories we don't have time to tell you here. But <laughs> even when I didn't want to engage, I'm in a, in a hotel at, at like seven in the morning in Seattle. I've had a couple of days of conference teaching. I'm tired. I got to go speak at a church later. I did not want to talk about Jesus at all, man. That was the last thing, you know. Many people know before my first cup of coffee, I'm an atheist, atheist, so leave me alone, you know. But this gal was all bubbling and everything, and she starts talking to me and uh, want to know why I'm in Seattle, and I just want her to go away. And so I figured I know what I'll do. I'll just tell her... I'm going to be preaching at a church here in another hour or so. And I figure, okay, now she'll run off. And she said, oh, that's great. I said, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Why, are you a Christian? Oh, no, I'm not a Christian. I used to be a Christian, but not anymore. Now the universe takes care of me. Huh? What does that mean? And so she keeps saying this new agey stuff, and I just can't help myself. What? What's up with that? Now, I was very polite to her, but I'm asking her for clarification. Then she finally goes away. And I was glad. Uh, <laughs> but then she comes back a few, uh, maybe 10 minutes later. And she said, you know what? Nobody has ever asked me questions like you've asked me. Like, to honest to God, this is what she said to me. Wow. And, and it got me thinking. And so I said, well, if I had more time, I could ask you more questions and you could do some more thinking. But this is a great example of the power of the of the the game plan, because I'm not even I'm not even I don't even want to do this right then. You know, uh, go away. You know, <laughs> that's with my heart. Yet. Um, so the pressure was yet, really off. <laughs> yeah. So but but still, it, it it's something the Holy Spirit used. Now, the third step of the game plan, just to round this out, is to make a point. And so this is where we, in a sense, go on and on the offensive, trying to make a point, but we always use questions to do it. Maybe the point is our own point of view that we work around to using questions to accomplish that. Or maybe the point that we're trying to do is, is to show a weakness or a flaw in the other person's view. So when the atheist is faulting God for his immoral uh, ethnic cleansing, for example, you know, in the Old Testament, um, then I my question is, what is the standard that you're using or where are you getting the standard to judge God by? Because you're, you're an atheist, right? So um, where does that come from? That's a completely legitimate question. Notice the kind of mild-mannered way that I'm offering it. I'm not pointing the finger and saying, you can't do that. You have no standard. You're an atheist. You know, you have no morality. You know, instead it's this question. Now he's got it. Every time you ask a question, the ball goes in the other person's court. And this is the value of that kind of approach. So that's the first section of the book, the game plan. The rest of the book are a series of, um, of individual tactics. I mentioned suicide earlier. Um, taking the roof off is a tactic of Francis Schaeffer that I employ there in the book. Um, that's basically where you, that's like a reductio, where you accept their point of view for the sake of argument, and then you follow it out to its logical conclusion. And so you can do that with the atheist and the morality thing. So you're telling me atheists that there is no God, right? It's only material self, right? Then morality can't exist, as I understand it, right? So then when it comes to an objection about genocide, then you have no grounds to object to genocide if I understand your view correct. Is that right? Now what's he going to do? See, what I did is I gave his view a test drive and I showed it went right over the cliff. Okay. So, and uh, there's a, a new tactic that I have in the in the 10th anniversary edition of the book called Inside Out, which is something I use a lot. And it also trades a bit on a Francis Schaeffer insight that all human beings are made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, even if they deny that, they still are that. And being made the image of God, there are certain things that are built into them that they cannot get away from. And uh, and all we have to do is listen, mm. you know, and then we're going to see these things and identify a number of them. And the point here and the way I end the chapter is um, they may run from God, 
but they can't run from themselves. And so within them turned out to be all these things that you can take advantage of and ask questions about and whatever to help them to see um, uh, your point more clearly. There's also just the facts, ma'am. I mentioned earlier about uh, religion is called more bloodshed than anything else in in history. Well, this is just flat out false. Um, And uh, in in the 10th anniversary edition, I give a lot of statistical background for that. Um, And there are a lot of things, claims that people make that are just not factually sound. And uh, so th- there's what that, about eight or ten tactics. I have a, a new one in the new book called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Yeah, and <laughs> the, <laughs> the point of that is to, to uh, use Jesus on your side when you uh, are making a case, you know, so um, if, Let argue, if make Je- them argue with Jesus, basically. Right? Exactly right. And this was a, an approach I used when I did a TV debate with uh, Deepak Chopra, probably the best known uh, new age guru in the world. And, uh, and, and, and the idea is uh, that, as you pointed out, Tony, uh, let, the, uh, let Jesus do the arguing. So people are bugged because you said, you know, Jesus is the only way of salvation. I say, wait, you know, you know I, I can understand how that would bother you. It bothered me, too, you know. But um, that, I didn't make that up. That's what Jesus said. So do you think Jesus was mistaken? Now, notice how that's a question. Mm-hmm. Now the ball's in their court. Right. It's easy to say Kokel's mistaken. It's a lot harder to say Jesus is mistaken because Jesus has high Q. That is, he's got a lot of popularity in our culture. They don't know what he taught, <laughs> but they think he's a really nice guy who, uh, you know, is about social justice and helping the poor and, and uh, loving everybody and accepting everybody. This is their mistaken understanding of Jesus because he never read him. But, um, but since they respect Jesus, we can use Jesus as an ally in our discussions with other people. So that gives you an idea, kind of a, a broad overview good, of yeah, how the book yeah. is structured and the That's kinds good. of things you can find in the book. Yeah, good. Um, we uh, we here are presuppositionalists uh, um, and uh, unapologetic about it. And uh, and so uh, your your book does cover a lot of those uh, insights that we bring. It's saying, uh, you know, we, we all have standards that we, we bring to the table. Let's discuss those. Uh, sure. Building off questions uh, by what standard is kind of the, the nomenclature for, for us. And so do, do you... Um do you tend to more operate within kind of that framework of apologetic method or do you kind of like a, a No, I, I probably, I mean, I understand the differences um, really well. And I did a lot of studying on this a number of years ago. And um, when people say, well, I'm kind of half and half, well, they don't understand the issues then because they're really two very different um, theological and philosophical approaches to the project. Now, there may be overlap in techniques and the way conversations work and stuff like that, but they're really guided uh, by different principles. Um, I, uh, I am not a presuppositionalist. I would be considered the way I tell people is they look at all these different types of apologetic approaches. I said, well, there's presuppositionalists and then there's everybody else <laughs> because that's, that's the two categories. Really everybody else are just versions of evidentialists and whether it's <laughs> classical or historical or whatever. Uh, I actually think that Francis Schaeffer was, uh, was an evidentialist and, uh, um, but who was very sensitive to the issue of uh, presuppositions. I mean, maybe that's an open question for you guys, but th- that's the way I would I would characterize myself. And maybe the simplest way of putting it, because um, when people ask me about this, and you guys know that sometimes the discussion about the distinctions is somewhat philosophically and theologically technical, um, I just tell them, and um, my apologies to my presuppositionalist friends here, I just tell them I think it's a tempest in a teapot. And, uh, and yeah, well, that means I'm not a presuppositionalist, obviously. And, uh, and, and that instead, what I try to do is I try to make my defense of Christianity in the same way as I see the biblical individuals making their defense of Christianity, whether it's Jesus or whether it's the, uh, the apostles in the book of Acts or whatever. And I think if we are following their model, what they're doing, whatever our other convictions might be about theological or phys- philosophical underpinnings, we're probably going to be safe. So I guess that um, kind of leads into kind of almost a, uh, an atheist version of your book. And I, I, would, I would hate to characterize it just as that, but uh, we talked about Peter Bogosian and his right. 
right. uh, manual for creating atheists. And in right. that book, he says that Christians operate on this principle of blind faith, and he defines faith as either belief without evidence or pretending to know things you don't know, which are definitely yeah. uh, biblical definitions of, of that word, and we right. wouldn't uh, we wouldn't uh, go against that. But how do you how do you then um, kind of answer this? Uh, how does uh, how do Christians kind of know Christianity is true? How, what, what would be the response? Well, you're right, by the way, Bogosian, I think, does have a, a – it's a, the Manual for Creating Atheists or Manual for Atheists. I have it back here. Um, it is it is kind of like a tactics book for atheists. They're very similar, you know, and what's very interesting about his approach – and I, I admire the approach, you know, because what he says is to his people, he says, don't argue for atheism. He also says, don't argue against Christianity. He's got a very, very focused approach, and the focused approach is you argue, you you ask questions about their convictions and this and the uh, the justification for their convictions, because he's convinced there is no justification for convictions. Faith has no evidence, or else it wouldn't be faith. Notice there's another attempt to to impose a definition there. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's interesting, and here's one verse for people can think of that will kind of um, hold them in good stead in answering from the scripture that particular claim and it's right at the end of the gospel of john and it's easy to remember because it's immediately after thomas you know when thomas says you know i gotta stick my finger and all that stuff you know and jesus is going that is a bit much thomas you know and uh, some people take jesus remarks as evidence that he wants blind faith but they haven't read the next verse because what John says is he gives in the next verse, chapter 20, verse 21, I think it is, the reason why he wrote the entire gospel. And here's what he says. He says that many other signs and wonders Jesus performed. That's miracles. There's seven of them in the gospel of John. Many others he performed that are not written in this book, but these have been included essentially in order that you might believe. Huh? That what? Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and in believing have life in his name. So there he connects John in the the most famous gospel in the world, right? He connects faith, belief with the evidence. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that Jesus isn't asking for blind faith from Thomas because uh, because that would be a contradiction right there within two verses, all right, which I don't think John was really stupid, all right? <laughs> but uh, but what it does is it connects the evidence with belief. So, uh, but Bogosian first sets the stage by misdefining faith, and unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians that see it that way, if not if not in fact, at least in practice. That mm-hmm. is, they have no good reasons to offer why Christianity might be true. So it's easy to get a Christian stuck if you ask him the right questions. And by the way, I've done it before. And so of other, my, my friends, they go, yeah, I was on an airplane the other day and I was sitting next to a guy reading the Bible. So I just, you know, basically played the atheist, you know, and started <laughs> questions, you know, and maybe Sean McDowell or Frank Turk or Jay Warner Wallace. Or, I mean, these, these giants, right? And they're laying it on the guy. And <laughs> then, I mean, sooner or later, we got to kind of show our hand and what, uh, but the, uh, but it just demonstrates that Christians are unprepared. Okay. And this is what Bogosian is trading on. He is also trading. I think illicitly on on a technique of asking questions because I think his technique and you can see the examples where he's distorting things, and uh, and, and the biggest distortion, of course, is his misdefining faith. And uh, listen, you know, if if faith is belief without evidence, uh, why why wouldn't that same definition legitimately apply to an atheist? Because atheists don't give evidence for the non-existence of God. They don't think they need to because they don't think they have a belief. But of course they have a belief. They believe God doesn't exist. That's a belief. That's their belief. (laughs) Yes, they lack a belief in God, but they don't lack belief. They believe there is no God. And that's, and hey, you don't write books about your non-beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I have no 
belief of any kind of who the best footballer team is in this in, in you know in Austra- Australia, for example. I don't know. I'm just taking something. I know in New Zealand it's the it's the All Blacks, so I know that. Right. One. But, you know, but the I don't know in Australia. Who know? I have no idea. So I can legitimately say I have no belief because I have no information by which I can form a belief, and therefore I'm never going to write anything about footballers in Australia. All right. But these guys write whole books and give seminars and go on the radio and have websites. What are they talking about? Nothing. (laughs) They're not. They're talking about their convictions. And see, this is why I think that whole approach is dishonest. And if I were an atheist, I would never take it. They do have a belief. They have a belief, a conviction, and they think it's true. And they think it's true that there is no God. Okay. And so, okay, then the question is, what's your evidence for that? Now, in a certain sense, pardon me, it might be unfair to ask for evidence for the non-existence of something. And and I wouldn't do that, you know. Um, I I don't think they have to prove the universal negative kind of deal. I I don't think that's a fair thing to ask of them. But if I'm just going to take their definition of of faith and belief at face value, then they would would be vulnerable to the same same, uh, objection, it seems to me. So, um, and by the way, I, Doug Guyvet, the, the philosopher over Talbot, gave me this little insight. He said, he asked this question of the atheist who takes this, makes this maneuver. I'm going to make a statement and I want you to respond and tell me whether you agree or you disagree or you're just going to withhold. Here's the statement. God exists. So, do you agree? No, you don't agree, obviously, because you're an atheist, right? Okay, so do you withhold are you not weighing in one way or another on that? That would be an agnostic. Right. No. Well, then if you don't agree and you're not withholding, then you agree, uh, you disagree rather with the statement God exists. You are claiming God does not exist. That's just the way it works. Right. And there are no other categories. That's exhaustive. Right. So now you uh, ask the question, how did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could. Yeah, what are your reasons? Exactly. Um, but again, I, I guess I'm I'm not going to press somebody for the reasons they don't believe in God. I'm going to press the, uh, the people for the reasons that they reject obvious, obvious evidence of, of God. And one of them is morality. I think the moral argument is great and what proves the reality of objective morality is the problem of evil everybody knows something's wrong with the world everybody knows that it doesn't matter when you lived or where you lived they know something's wrong and atheists bring this up all the time the world is not the way it's supposed to be but think about it the world can't be the way it's not supposed to be unless there is a way the world is supposed to be and you can't have a way the world's supposed to be without a sposer <laughs> All right. So there's that's the moral argument in a nutshell, so to speak. And this is something they have an answer. For, they have to answer for. What justifies all the moral judgments you make about all kinds of things that they must make? Because inside them is a moral creature that made the image of God. That's the inside-out tactic. Right. What justifies all that? And uh, so th- th- these are these are kind of the ways that. One might maneuver in those kinds of conversations. Great, nice. that's really yeah. helpful. Yeah, nice. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal a lot of that for uh, what I have to do. <laughs> well, and I'll, steal I'll my stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's fine with me. That's what I want to do. Um, and just, uh, we, we greatly appreciate you coming on. And, and uh, I just kind of want to end with, with a frontline perspective. Uh, we've been asking this to people like J. Warren Wallace and, and uh, Lydia McGrew. Um, where do you see the future of Christian apologetics going? And that could be within your own ministry or Sure. Well, I think it's blossoming uh, magnificently and has been for the last 20 years. And uh, and it's uh, I don't know if I can put my finger on one particular reason apart from the the sovereign movement of God. But I think one reason is because as um, as the, the 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 pressure and resistance from the world heats up, uh, there's more resistance against Christianity, which means more resistance against Christians. And then Christians are realizing, man, I don't have the goods. How do I deal with these issues? Mm-hmm. I think also, and William Lane Craig has made this observation, that for the last 20 or 30 years, significant strides have been made in the area of philosophy of religion, with evangelical Christians really shining there. And there's a trickle-down effect. 
So at Stand to Reason, we're kind of, um, we consider ourselves kind of translators. So we'll read the Bill Craigs and the J.P. Morelands, you know, and, and Doug Guyvitz and people like that. And then we'll do our best to translate that into language that is accessible to more to the rank and file. It's not the cookies on the lower shelf because some of those cookies can't go down to the bottom shelf. But but what we can get them down there, if they reach up a little bit, they can get them. And so I think the, the, the progress that's been made in the area of philosophy and uh, the world of ideas that has a trickle-down effect to be into practical application in Christian apologetics, I think the increasing hostility that's coming from the culture is a factor. And I, and I do think that there's there are, are, are if the, the growth of um, so many organizations that are focusing in on this and making provision for this. There are a lot, a lot of programs now that at, at Biola, there's apologetics masters. At HBU, there's a master's. SES has a master's. And I mean, there are more and more. Colorado Christian, I think, has a program and at least Trouble's involved with. So more and more writers, more and more individuals with organizations, more and more universities are making this information accessible. And then with the explosion of the internet, and even ironically with the last six months of uh, everybody having to pivot with the uh, the political consequences of COVID, um, this, I mean, look, here we are. You know, I never used to, I got a camera, man. I got a camera right, hanging right here. I bought it a low guy or whatever, you know, and I got a microphone, you know, I never had that kind of stuff. But this now gives me an access that I never had before. And and this is, in a sense, uh, fortuitously propelled us into a, a higher level of productivity using digital uh, media and the like. So there are all kinds of things that are converging. There's a massive number of Christians who have no clue. But um, but I, I think that, that more will be getting a clue as we get more visibility and more teams like what you're doing, Patrick and Tony. And, uh, you know, there are lots and lots of uh, YouTubers now that are doing fabulous work and are gathering a following. And uh, the more we all work together, like we're doing right now, the way we encourage each other and, um, you know, keep our head about ourselves and, and not believe our own press, but just go out and serve and do good work and have a good attitude, I think that the, the, the better suited the body of Christ will be to engage the increasingly hostile issues that we're facing. And I'll just say, uh, you know, critical theory has just come out like a gangbuster in the last six yeah, months. And probably a lot of people don't even know what critical theory is. Mm -hmm. But uh, but they've been, the students have been weaned on that for the last 10 years yeah. at every university in the country. And now more and more at Christian universities. Yeah. It's yeah. tragic. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a competing worldview that has a has certain appeal for Christians because Christians care about oppression and they care about racism and they 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 uh, because of their their moral virtue but they don't realize that this is a Trojan horse that is dragging them into a false worldview yeah. and so now we got we got all we all you me our teams we got a whole new area to develop and teach and train and to pass on to the body so they're not taken down by this so there's always something going yeah. on <laughs> yeah, well, well said. Thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, I, I say it for every single time that, that I meet heroes of the faith like yourself. Is, uh, you know, we just started this podcast because this is what we were already doing every other mm -hmm. Saturday over coffee. And so we were like, oh, let's film it. And yeah, now, now we can meet the, the authors that, that, that we read. And that's, that's amazing. So I appreciate yeah. you getting the camera and the microphone and, and yeah. coming on yeah. and, and, yeah. and taking this hour to, to talk with us. Yeah. Well, I don't have to take three days to fly somewhere and do a presentation. I'm just right here. I got my pajama bottoms on. You know, truth, truth be told. So, and I, I, I mean, my industry grew. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, you know, Zoom. We're using Zoom, and Zoom, you can put those backgrounds in it. You know, right, so right. I chose the messy office background. You know, for mine. Atheists called us this our jail cell. So, that's right. Yeah, nothing fancy there. So, uh, um, so standard reason str.org. Uh, where, where else can um, um, people interact with your content? YouTube and. Well, yeah, we have all uh, we have a great team that manages all of our um, social media stuff. And to be honest with you, I can't keep up with all that. Uh, I just don't even know what it's called, right? So uh, I know this is Zoom, all right. That's not exactly social media; it's a tool for what we're doing. But but we have all that stuff: YouTube and uh, Pinterest and um, Pokemon and Hula Bula or whatever <laughs> comes out next, you know. But uh, you can if you go to our website str.org and then scroll down 
down to, to the bottom of the homepage. I think all the links to all of our things are there. We have a God blog, uh, for example, where we weigh in on a regular basis with things. We have a uh, we have a um, what we call a kind of a newsletter. It's called Solid Ground, but it's a misleading title because you're not going to find pictures of our staff at bake sales or something like that. You're going to get a hard-hitting article. It comes out every other month. And then alternating months, we have a mentoring letter. Now, I author those most of the times, and it's my way of mentoring those who are part of our larger constituency. Now, you can get that online uh, on our website, but uh, if you sign up for it, it'll be sent to you virtual, and that's the easiest way to get it. Or you can get our, our app, so on your phone, looking for my phone, I don't I don't actually use the app, so I don't know. I don't know how to use the app, but I know we got apps, and uh, we have two different apps, and they've just been updated. And it's very, very easy to navigate to through the standard things that we offer on a regular basis to keep your listeners equipped with the newest stuff. Probably in January, the Solid Ground, uh, I'll probably do a short series, maybe one, maybe two or three Solid Grounds through the middle of the year on critical theory, mm, just to great. bring people up to speed so they can figure out what the heck is going on yeah. here and how am I supposed to respond to this as a Christian? So, uh, and the people are getting much more pressure from their environment, from, from the social institutions. They're being forced at their work to read books that are inconsistent with their worldview. And uh, and if they don't read it, they maybe lose their job or get a lot of hostile pressure. Inconsistent with common sense, but anyway. Yes, of course. That's right. No, yes, there's. But you know, first out though, Tony, out of the gate, and especially when you have some really uh, ugly things that happen that a lot of press is being given to, I I can see how it strokes the sympathies of people of good and virtuous character. And uh, but what's being fed to them is is uh, poison as you know and this is what we have to help our people with just another thing to deal with well if uh, you've joined us over these past few weeks the book has been tactics a game plan for discussing your christian convictions thank you greg kokel for discussing your christian convictions with us (laughs) and uh, i I hope we can call on you again uh, when we do of uh, course uh, it's uh, it's a real treat and uh, that book by the way if you're getting one see that little red thing in the middle that's the 10 year anniversary edition and that's the that's the one you want to get and then there's also the story of reality how the world began how it ends and everything important that happens i always appreciate when the authors themselves read the audiobook so if you go to audible and we'll include the links below i did do that yeah uh, in fact you you did what what i i always uh, uh extol authors to do is put the footnotes at the bottom and you actually read the footnotes in the audiobook. <laughs> I was reading along with your book because I, I bought it for the show and I was like, oh, he's reading the, he's reading the details. Right. That's what I love. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I did. In most cases I did. Right. right. So thank you again yeah. for coming on and uh, we greatly appreciate you and your work. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure and please keep up the good work. I'm glad to see you on board. I'm glad to see what you're doing and uh, we need every hand on deck right now. That's right. Yeah, you're awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for uh, joining us today.